The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me now as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help? Father, again, we want to pray once again and ask that you would help us to see you more clearly and that no one would leave this morning unchanged by your word. Satisfy our souls with your word so that we would know you more, love you more, and look more and more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, we received an update from one of our global partners. Some of you may know her, Linda Oatley. She serves street children in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. And she has been battling cancer. And she gave us the update that her chemotherapy treatment is no longer effective. She has no more treatment options. And she's choosing to remain in Brazil with her Brazilian family. And this got me to ask the question, well, why? Why wouldn't she come home to America to spend the remaining time that she has? And I didn't get a chance to ask her, but my guess is because she knows that Brazil nor America is her true and lasting home. Her true and lasting home is in heaven. She is a true citizen of a heavenly kingdom. And so whether she passes in Brazil or in America, it makes very little difference. That's a somber way to start a message this morning. But that's what Peter wants us to get this morning. Peter wants us to know that our identity informs who we are and how we live. We are to have the perspective and attitude in the midst of persecution and outside attacks that we are ultimately those who are heavenly citizens more than any earthly kingdom. And what Peter doesn't want his people to do is to respond like a cornered animal, this fight or flight instinct, because there's a very real temptation, which we've talked about for these believers, that as the culture around them marginalizes them and minimizes them and even attacks them, there's a tendency, a temptation perhaps, to say, Maybe we can throw in the towel. Maybe let's give up. Or at the very least, maybe we'll assimilate to the society around us and just be closeted Christians. We'll just be covert Christians. I'm, I'm tired of swimming against the current of culture and society. Let's just go with the current for a season or indefinitely. The other temptation would be to fight back. People are attacking us. People are maligning us. We're being slandered, so let's fight fire with fire. Let's lash out and fight back and meet force with force. And both of those ways, Peter says, fall short of how he calls them to live. Christians don't do either of those. They don't shrink back in fear, nor do they lash out with force. But instead, he says, believers as elect exiles, are to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's the broad, melodic line of the book of First Peter. Chapter 1, verse 1, you're elect exiles. Chapter 5, verse 12, stand firm in the true grace of God. Persevere, 
Be steadfast, immovable. Don't shrink back. Don't lash out, but stand firm. Be steadfast. So our main point this morning in our passage in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, is that we are to be citizens of heaven who live in order to display the glory of God so that some might be saved. And the way that we do that is abstaining from the passions of the flesh and then conducting ourselves honorably. True believers live not for earthly vindication, but with an eternal perspective. And Peter's aim in this entire section from 2.11 all the way to 4.11 is that believers would conduct themselves rightly in the midst of a pagan society. I want us to see first that verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, signals this shift in the book. The first half, first kind of part of the letter, chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, has been all about identity, who you are. You're born again to a living hope, an inheritance that's imperishable, your royal priesthood, God's special possession. All of that has been to reinforce and reassure Peter's readers of who they are. But now he turns to, this is how you're to live. This is how your conduct is to look in the midst of a pagan society. So this next section from 2.11 all the way to 4.11 addresses how we are to live. And he goes on in coming weeks to say, you're to submit to pagan authorities. You're to submit as servants. You're to live as Christian wives and husbands or how to suffer unjustly. So what we're gonna do this morning is look mainly at verses 11 and 12. And broken this up into two parts. The first is that we are to wage war against Christ's dishonoring passions in verse 11. And then the second is we're to display God's glory with Christ-honoring conduct. And there's three subpoints for each of these. So first, we're to wage war against Christ's dishonoring passions. Look with me at verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Look how Peter begins. Even though you're marginalized, even though you feel rejected by the culture around you, don't forget that you are beloved. You're beloved of God and you're beloved, dear friends of the apostle Peter. And then he goes into the first part. He says, you are sojourners and exiles. We've looked at that quite a bit last week, that we have dual passports, that we're not mainly citizens of earth, but citizens of a heavenly kingdom. This language of sojourner likely echoes Genesis 23 verse 4. This is where Abraham, who is a literal sojourner in a land where he's not a citizen, is trying to buy a plot of land in order to bury his wife, Sarah, who has just died. And he says this, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And so when Peter uses this language of sojourner, it's not that we're literal sojourners like Abraham, but that we follow in a long line of sojourners who ultimate kingdom is not here on earth, but is a heavenly kingdom. We are Christ first people, heaven bound population that follows in the long line of believers all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, David, Paul, and now the apostles. This idea of sojourner or exile reminds us that we will experience constant partial alienation during our time here on earth. Our lives 
are to be characterized by constant, partial alienation here on earth. This is not our true home. This is a little bit like camping, and we're waiting to get home. Some of you love camping, and I often think, well, what's wrong with you? Jamesons, I'm looking at you guys. Uh, I only go camping because my kids like it, and it makes me appreciate the air conditioning when I get home. You got to deal with the heat, the mosquitoes, unclean bathrooms, and all of the other things. And our time here on earth is a little bit like that. This is camping, and we're waiting to get home. Our missionaries and global partners experience this all the time. They're always between cultures. They're always between temporary housing, always borrowing something only to pass it along to the next owner when they get back. I remember talking on Wednesday night with some of our global partners. They serve in North Central Africa, mainly among a Muslim population. And I was talking with the wife, and she says, we wear headscarves and face coverings, and she has teen girls, and they do the same. It's a constant reminder that you are not at home. This is not your home country. And this is hard for Americans to grasp because we feel at home here, many of us. And what Peter is saying, as sojourners and exiles, that's who you are. Constant, partial alienation in the place in which you live. Now, look with me at the second part. It talks about abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Now, immediately, we, we can actually find a little bit of comfort in him mentioning this call, this exhortation to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We know that we have this new identity. We know who we are, living stones, royal priesthood, all of these glorious things that he's talked about in chapter 1, 3, all the way to 2, 10. But he says you're still going to battle these passions of the flesh. They still hang on, and so we need to abstain from them. Even though you have a complete new identity, you're still going to battle these sinful desires. And so this is a rebuke to our modern age of just do what feels good. Just go with your feelings. In an age of instant gratification where we can get anything we want, he says, no, you're, so, you're called to abstain from these passions of the flesh. Now, what are these passions of the flesh? Well, he uses this word in chapter 1, verse 14. Look with me there. This word passions conveys desire, longing, and craving. But even more than that, he says in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of what? Your former ignorance. So these are the things you did. These are the things you practiced. These are the things that you naturally gravitated to before you were in Christ when you weren't trusting him. Or look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He even goes on to say that because you don't join in on these things, the Gentiles are surprised and they malign you. So it's very similar to our passage here. 
These passions that are not to characterize our life, that we're to abstain from, are the things that characterize the lives of these people prior to Christ. It's a former way of life, but it's no longer who they are. But there are certain sinful desires that even pagans and unbelievers would recognize as being bad for society such as sexual immorality or drunkenness or lawlessness or unrestrained carnal desires. And Peter's calling them to abstain from these sinful passions of the flesh, but instead to walk in the Spirit. Now look with me at the third part. It says, because they wage war against our souls. So what's the war that's being waged there? Well, these desires might look tempting, in the moment. They're going to inflict damage upon our souls ultimately, cause believers to be weak and ineffective, diminishing our ability to see and know and love Christ. When we were talking about this as a pastoral staff, Pastor Ben Catterson mentioned glowworms as an illustration of this. And I didn't know much about glowworms, but glowworms in New Zealand and Australia are the larvae or the maggots of the fungus gnat and they're carnivores. And so they live in these pitch black caves in New Zealand. And if you lift your eyes, you can see this brilliant blue hue shining in the midst of this deep cave. It looks like stars. And what they do is they shine with this blue hue, bioluminescence, right? And little bugs come and mosquitoes and they get caught in these sticky threads so that these worms, these maggots can eat their prey. And so that's a little bit like the image that Peter's painting for us. It's waging war against our soul. Sin, the passions of our former ignorance, these things that used to characterize our life, call out with a beautiful voice and with a brilliant, beautiful hue. And they say, it's going to be okay. No one will know. It's going to advance your career. It'll feel really good. It's totally worth it, ultimately, to lead us towards death and destruction. And so I want to camp out here for a moment as we look at this first exhortation to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. What might that look like as we apply this this morning? Yes, we know our identity, but our identity is to inform how we live. And here, Peter gives us this first exhortation. And so even this morning, there is a war for your soul. Satan would love more than anything else for you to fall asleep and just ignore all that's being talked about or to say, well, those pastors, you know, they get so excited about all these things. Maybe they should just, you know, chill out. But there is a war being Waged. Your spiritual health hangs in the balance, and we must beware of indulging in the passions of the flesh. What, what do these things do when we indulge in the passions of the flesh? I have three things in mind. Sinful passions, when we indulge in them, dulls us to the word of God. So we don't want to read the Bible when we know we've sinned against God. The pure spiritual milk of God's word becomes bland and tasteless because our taste buds have been burned. It's like eating a whole bag of sour Skittles. 
I'm guessing none of you have done that, but that may have happened a time or two at our house. And if you eat a whole bag of sour Skittles, sour Skittles have a coating on the outside that's acidic. And if you eat half the bag, it will burn off the taste buds so that everything else has sort of that same dull taste. For you parents, you now have your afternoon activity. But a bag of sour Skittles is the picture that he's giving here. When we sin, indulge our sinful passions, things that used to characterize our life, we become dulled to God's Word. God's Word is irrelevant and ineffective and legalistic and boring. Our spiritual senses have been dulled. Sinful passions also cause us to be cynical towards prayer. We might think, well, why pray when I've just sinned again? Or why would God listen to me when I've just committed that same sin again? Or does he even accept me? We become indifferent to prayer, cynical when it comes to prayer, rather than approaching his throne of grace with confidence. I don't feel forgiven. Our sinful passions rot away the pillars of our faith. Or third, sinful passions make us indifferent to the gathering of the church. We think, why, why gather with other believers? What if they find out that I'm really a sinner? And, and instead of finding the church to be a place where we all come because it's level ground at the foot of the cross and we can help one another and sharpen one another and, and, and care for one another, we think, I don't want to be discovered as a sinner. And so we are to abstain from these passions of the flesh. And so when it comes to these passions of the flesh, yes, we're to abstain, but we need to fight fire with fire. It's what Thomas Chalmers calls the explosive power of new affections, that we are to fill ourselves with something better. That's why Peter has spent so much time and so much ink on our identity. He wants us to know you've been born again to a living hope. This is not who you are anymore. You're to live as who you truly are. The best way to keep ourselves from eating the junk food of the world is to fill ourselves with the rich, real food, protein-rich meal from God's Word. And so that's what Peter wants us to see. Fill yourself with this new and better affection. And that's why he spent so much time in this first part of the letter again and again saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is how you're to live. This is what characterizes you. You have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How amazing is that? You've been ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It's like when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. He wants the one better thing and gets rid of everything else. John Piper writes, The root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. The bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling joy. That's what Peter wants us to see throughout this letter Oh, you have a superior pleasure, a superior joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look with me at verse 12 as we move on to the second part. We're to display God's glory with Christ-honoring conduct. Verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So we go from this negative exhortation, don't do or abstain, now to this positive exhortation, conduct yourselves honorably. And the three parts of this are keep your conduct honorable when they speak you against you as evildoers to see your good deeds and glorify God. So the first part is to keep your conduct honorable. What's in view is likely what Peter's already mentioned to some degree, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Peter's readers were not to retaliate when under attack or to shrink back, but to persist and continue in conducting themselves in a way that pagans would even recognize as virtuous by their own standards. Now, it wouldn't be all of their behavior that the society would see as good, but there would certainly be some that the society around them would say, oh, we see that you Christians are different, that they could keep their identity as Christ followers and live honorably in the midst of a pagan society. And so, what conduct? Well, Peter likely has in mind some of the things that he's going to mention in the subsequent verses. He talks about submitting to earthly authorities in chapter 2, 13 to 17. Be subject to human institutions and authorities, using our freedom not as a cover-up, but as servants of God. Or how servants submit to masters with respect, following in the footsteps of Jesus who endured unjust suffering. So he has in view putting off passions, but then also conduct that would be honorable, that would be recognized by the society around them in order to display that Christ is ultimate in their life. Christians are to show the society and culture around them that they're honest and just and gracious and gentle and self-controlled and loving. So it goes back to this call for holy living that we saw in chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. You're to have a fatherly resemblance. You're to resemble your Father who is in heaven, who is holy. But then we see the second part. He says, when they speak against you as evil doers. Not if, but when. So despite your good conduct and behavior, following Christ, marching to the beat of his drum, you're going to still get spoken of as evildoers. And this is a hard word for many of us because we don't like it. We feel anxious when people don't like us. We're kind of people pleasers or we struggle with that at heart. And we don't want people to speak against us. But Peter says, they're, they're, they're not going to accept you. They're going to speak against you as evildoers. It's a reminder that we, again, are aliens and sojourners and exiles. Constant, partial alienation to the world in which we live. And in a sense, there's going to be a suspicion and hostility because they don't approve of the way in which Peter's readers are going to live. They might see some of it and say, oh, that's, that's honorable conduct. But they're going to see others and say, I can't believe you Christians. And that's so true of us today, isn't it not? That there's going to be lists of things. When we follow Jesus, the world will say, we, we're so glad Christians are on board with that. We, we, we want you in the public sphere on these issues. And then there's going to be other things where they say, get out. You're on the wrong side of history. You, you've, you've totally missed it. Why can't you be more loving? like these issues on the other side. Marriage. Here's some of the issues. Marriage. It's between only two people, not three or four, and between a man and a woman. The Bible tells us that God made male and female in the image of God, not various genders of your choosing. 
Life is to be protected, worthy of dignity and respect, especially the most vulnerable, such as the unborn or the disabled or the elderly. Christians care about adoption and foster care and safe families so that orphans and those without safe homes can have safe homes. Pornography is an affront to God and those made in his image. It perverts his design for sex and sexuality. It commoditizes and debases the gift of our bodies. Human trafficking or sex trafficking is an attack on God's design for humanity. Or commercial surrogacy distorts God's design by turning women and their bodies and the children into products that can be bought or sold. Or that all people of every ethnicity and race is made in the image of God and worthy of respect and honor and should be treated justly. You can just begin to put them in the different categories. The world will say, yes, we're so glad you're for these things and not these other things. And what Peter is trying to say is they're going to speak against you as evildoers one way or another. Don't compromise on these things. Continue conducting yourselves honorably, even if they malign you for these things and praise you for those. You're going to get applause for some things and vitriol for the others. And his call is to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't go back to this former way of living. So they do have legitimate criticism of you. But their criticism is going to be illegitimate as you continue to follow Jesus and him alone. And so we go to this third part where he says, so that they might see your good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation. So unbelievers are to be able to see some of the good works of believers in the midst of believers living in the midst of a pagan society. Gentleness and respect, and we mentioned a number of those things. This is likely an allusion to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our lives are to shine forth and give God honor and glory. So the question then is, well, what does it mean to glorify God on the day of visitation? And there's two main options. It could be that unbelievers see these good deeds and they get saved. They come to faith, so they glorify God. The second is that they see these good deeds, they do not come to faith, and ultimately they're judged. And through that just judgment, that glorifies God. Those are the two options. And I believe it's the former, though with a caveat. So unbelieving pagans get saved. The, word, the, verb, uh, the verb glorify here is used 61 times in the New Testament and doesn't speak of unbelievers who are forced to unwillingly glorify God. Revelation 16.9 even says this explicitly, that unbelievers don't glorify God. It says, they were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So judgment comes, and those who do not trust in Christ double down in their hatred and rebellion against God. Don't give him glory. Peter gives us two similar passages. In chapter 3, verse 1, which we read, or we looked at a little bit, he says that wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, so they're unbelievers, 
They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the idea is that as believers conduct themselves honorably, not indulging in the passions of the flesh, even in the face of criticism, even in the face of being spoken as evildoers, that the world will see and they'll say, I don't agree with all that you believe, but I respect some of that. And and boy, you're different. Even as the world continues to launch vitriol and attack after attack, the way you respond really conveys something different. And ultimately, that some would see that behavior, see that good conduct, and ultimately come to faith and glorify God who is in heaven. Peter's point is that some will repent and be saved. But I said there was a caveat, and this day of visitation does speak of judgment, though. So Isaiah 10.3, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this same phrase, day of visitation or day of punishment. It says this, Isaiah 10, verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment or the day of visitation in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help or where will you leave your wealth? So this Isaiah passage looks at a day when God will come back. Christ will return and bring his perfect justice and judgment. And so there is a sense, as Peter's talking about this, that there's going to be some who see your good deeds, and by God's grace, they're going to come and believe, and they're going to glorify God on that day so that as Christ returns, they've been saved. And yet, ultimately, there will be some who don't turn. And when God comes on that day, there will be judgment, and there will be justice. And so every believer will be vindicated. And that's going to be a comforting word for Peter's readers and a comforting word for us that if we're being spoken against, if we're being slandered and maligned as evildoers, that God will vindicate us. We don't need to vindicate ourselves. If you're unjustly fired at work because you believe that marriage is designed by God and is to be between a man and a woman, if you tweeted that, you probably could be fired in many of our workplaces. It's not uncommon in this day. He says, continue to conduct yourselves honorably. Some are going to see that and come to faith by God's grace. And others, they will be rightly judged. You will be vindicated. A day of visitation is indeed coming. And judgment comes for us all. And I imagine, as there is every week, there are some who have not trusted in Jesus, who are unprepared for this day of judgment. And you will stand to give an account for all that you've said, all that you've done, passions of the flesh, whether you conduct yourselves honorably. And you will stand before the judge. And for all those who are trusting in Christ, we say, we have no other hope except Jesus. Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. We cannot atone for them ourselves, and he's given us his righteousness. He's imputed his righteousness to us so that what we have is Christ. But for those who are not trusting in Christ this morning, perhaps you've grown up in the church, and you could maybe, you hear the testimonies of those who are getting baptized, and you think, I don't have a testimony. I don't think I could be baptized. We want to call you to come and trust in Jesus. 
There is a war being waged for your soul this morning. And we're calling you to repent of your sins and entrust yourself to Jesus alone. The one who can call you by name and give you a new identity. And then give you the power in order to carry it out and live in this new identity. I began this morning by talking about our global partner, Linda Oatley. And I want to close with that this morning. As I read that update, just that brief information, I, I, I texted Brad Nelson. And I said, it, it, can I share that? Is that public? And he said, let me check. And so he sent back the following. Brad called her and talked with her. And he wrote, I just got off the phone with Linda Oatley, our global partner in Brazil. She went there years ago to work with street kids. Currently, she's bedridden. She is able to get up and take a shower once in a while. She is hungry and thirsty all the time, but has not eaten or drank anything for over a week. The tumors are so big in her abdomen that she can't eat or drink, but the hunger is there all the time. The acid in her stomach gives her a heartburn sensation. She is always nauseous. She is thankful she is not in a lot of pain. She told me she hungers and thirsts more for Jesus than delicious food or drink that she is continually craving. Her system is not able to keep the fluids moving in her body, so her feet swell up all the time and are very large, which makes it hard for her to walk. She told me she thinks she will be gone in a week or so but she is happy in the Lord and ready to be with him. She says, quote, if Jesus is taking me home, my job here must be done. How beautiful are the feet, the swollen feet of those who preach the good news. She is in pain and suffering, and yet she hasn't lost sight of her identity and purpose. She knows that her true and lasting home is not in America, and it's not in Brazil. Her true and lasting home is in heaven. She's a true citizen of heaven. And though she's literally starving to death, she is hungry for more and more of Jesus. Though her body is wasting away, her spirit, her soul is being conformed day by day to look more and more like her Savior. And I imagine that as she dies... There are going to be street children in Brazil who will see and glorify God on that day of visitation. They too will come to know and love Jesus. And may the Lord give us this same perspective like Linda, that we would understand who we are, how God has called us to live, and then to carry out our marching orders until he calls us home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to take this moment now to pray for our dear sister, Linda. We pray that you would meet her, that she would be satisfied in Christ, that you would give her your peace and your power and your presence, that she would gaze upon your face as you call her home. And then we pray for each one of us this morning, Lord, that we would indeed 
find greater, superior joy and satisfaction in Christ so that all of those other passions would fade away in comparison and that we would delight in Jesus and that others would look upon that even in the midst of maligning and slander and say, I want what you have. I see Jesus in you. And so we pray that even in and through weakness, each one of us is weak this morning. We pray that there would be some among the nations and in our neighborhoods that would turn to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.